The views and opinions of findings and or devices discussed in this podcast are those of the host, subject matter experts, and or guests. Facts represented constitute our understanding as of the time of the podcast, whereas updated factual information may be developed. They should not be construed as pronouncing an official Department of Defense position, policy, decision, or endorsement. Hi, welcome to Clinical Updates in Brain Injury Science Today or Cubist, a podcast for healthcare providers about current research on traumatic brain injury, also known as TBI. This program is produced by the TBI Center of Excellence, or TBI-COE, and I'm your host today, Don Marion. Today, I'll be speaking with Ms. Amanda Gano, a physician assistant and TBI subject matter expert. Amanda and I will discuss a study entitled Impact of Depression and Post-Traumatic Stress on Manual and Oculomotor Performance in Service Members with a History of Mild Traumatic Brain Injury, an article written by Dr. Lars Hungerford and colleagues and published in the journal Brain Injury in May of 2023. Additionally, we're thrilled to welcome Dr. Lars Hungerford, a Senior Clinical Research Director at TBI-COE in San Diego and the first author of this paper. Dr. Hungerford, thank you for joining us today. Could you tell us a little bit about the background on the Bethesda Eye and Attention Measure, or BEAM, and TBI post-traumatic stress and why you decided to do this study? Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm honored to be here. My team at Naval Medical Center San Diego, or NMCSD, has been developing multimodal assessments over the past seven plus years. Prior to that, Dr. Mark Ettenhofer was conducting research out of Bethesda. And our interest in looking at ocular motor and manual metrics really stems from a deep desire to push the field forward and develop better instruments to detect potential effects following brain injury. Now, we have multiple manuscripts that show that the Bethesda Eye and Attention Measure, or BEAM, is really more sensitive to the potential chronic effects after TBI than typical gold standard assessments such as neuroimaging, CT, MRI, and even neuropsychological testing. And so this particular foray comprises the first of many steps that we're currently undertaking to assess the specificity of the instrument. So we've really determined that it's a sensitive instrument but how specific is it? So for example, we know that most, if not all individuals who continue to have symptoms from a mild TBI after three months, there are a number of other conditions or issues which could be driving their symptoms. So for example, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, insomnia, substance use, just to name a few. We also know that these conditions can negatively impact the assessment of neurocognitive functioning, even in the absence of TBI, much less when they're comorbid with TBI. And so this study was designed to assess the impact of depression and post-traumatic stress on ocular motor and manual response times in comparison to that of a brief battery of neuropsychological tests. Thanks a lot, Lars, for that very detailed description. So, Amanda, how was the study done? Yeah, sure. Hi, Don. Hi, Dr. Hungerford. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, so this was a cross-sectional correlational study of 188 active duty service members who met the DOD-VA criteria for mild traumatic brain injury or concussion. 
The purpose of this study, as Dr. Hungerford just explained, was to evaluate the impact of depression and PTS severity and comorbidity on ocular motor and manual or button press measures of visual attention among these patients. Participants completed a series of self-report symptom questionnaires and a clinical intake interview with a licensed provider. Providers conducted the intake interview using the Ohio State University TBI Identification Method, or OSU TBI-ID, to obtain relevant TBI history characterized using DOD criteria. The PTSD checklist for DSM-5, or PCL-5, was used to assess post-traumatic stress symptoms over the last month. The Patient Health Questionnaire 8, or PHQ-8, was used to measure depressive symptoms. And then finally, the Neurobehavioral Symptom Inventory, or NSI, was used to measure cognitive, affective, somatic, and sensory symptoms associated with a history of mild traumatic brain injury. Patients also underwent a neuropsychological assessment battery with a licensed neuropsychologist, and results of that test were averaged into a score that represented global cognition. Dr. Hungerford and his team then completed the Bethesda Eye and Attention Measure, or BEAM, as he explained. BEAM is an automated eight-minute continuous performance test that evaluates saccadic movements and manual responses to visual stimuli. Thanks, Amanda. Dr. Hungerford, could you tell us a little bit more about the BEAM and, and how you actually used it in this study? Sure. BEAM was developed by Dr. Mark Ettenhofer and colleagues at the Uniformed Health Services University in Bethesda dating back to 2010. And the task really is quite simple. Individuals are basically told to sit still, look directly at a screen and a white cross in the center. And the white cross will change to one of four types of cues. There'll either be no cue, a directional cue, which would be a white arrow pointing at a target in the person's peripheral vision, a misdirectional cue is also the same white arrow, but this time it's pointing in the opposite direction of the target in the person's peripheral vision. And then there's a no-go cue, which is a red arrow in the direction of the target in the person's peripheral vision. And what happens at that point is the person is then to look at the target as quickly as possible without moving their head. And this gives us the saccadic reaction time. At the same time, they also push a left or right button as fast as they can on a custom button box that correlates with the side of the target, which gives us a manual reaction time. The data we collected for the paper was collected in clinic from patients seen within the TBI program at Naval Medical Center San Diego. So Lars, I've been kind of familiar with BEAM for a number of years and very intrigued by it. But at the same time, I know that the most sensitive subtests of the ANAM are also reaction time subtests. And the ANAM, as you well know, is the preferred neurocognitive assessment battery in the DOD. Why do you think the BEAM may or may not be preferable to the ANAM? Yeah, great question, Don. I think that reaction time on the ANAM is just simple manual reaction time. So in other words, how fast can you click a mouse or push a button? A beam is multimodal, and so what I mean by that is we're assessing both manual reaction and saccadic reaction times. And why I think it's perhaps better is that saccadic reaction time is perhaps the most useful of these measures of cognitive efficiency. Saccades, or rapid eye movements, represent one of the most fundamental and frequent eye movements, and they're less vulnerable to non-neurological confounds than more complex ocular motor measures. Not only that, but saccadic reaction time tasks are also free from performance from other sensory modalities such as verbal, 
visual spatial and other motor processes. And because of that, we can add saccadic reaction time or saccadic measures as an embedded task within a broad range of tasks. But most importantly, saccadic eye movements begin and end extremely quickly. So we can collect a ton of data that's reliable in a very short period of time. The other differentiator is that BEAM taps into higher order cognitive functioning through the use of no-go trials. And so with the addition of no-go trials, the measures become more robust and they tap more directly into frontal lobe executive functioning, including inhibition of response. But one last thing is that we don't get age effects with the saccadic reaction time. And I think that's a really big thing. What we see is that with the data that we've collected, we don't see a typical decline with age that we do with manual reaction times. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, that's a great point, Lars, because I think there is an age effect with ANAM. So, Amanda, what did Dr. Hungerford and his team find with the traditional neuropsychological assessment data? Well, Don, the sample was overall predominantly white, male, and had some college education and had an average of 14 years on active duty and an average of two combat deployments and three lifetime mild TBIs. So overall, the investigators found that greater reported symptoms were associated with poorer neuropsychological performance on nearly all measures. So the overall global cognition composite score, which again was the result of the traditional neuropsychological test battery, was negatively associated with both the PHQ-8 and the PCL-5. So Don, the higher the scores on the PHQ-8 and PCL-5, the lower the scores were for global cognition. Higher scores on PHQ-8 depression inventory were the most strongly associated with decreases in individual neuropsychological measures sensitive to processing speed and working memory. Participants in the comorbid PTS and depression groups, so again, those with higher PHQ-8 and PCL-5 scores, had significantly lower performance on neuropsychological tests compared to those who did not have elevated PHQ-8 or PCL-5 scores in all measures except for one measure of attention. Interesting. So, Lars, could you explain the BEAM results and how they correlate with that? Certainly. In a nutshell, we've basically found that depression and post-traumatic stress also had negative impacts on BEAM performance, and that was really the whole point. How do these features impact our test? But it was quite different from what we saw with the neuropsych test data. We know from the literature that depression can have a negative impact on processing speed, episodic memory, and executive functioning, so we hypothesized that we might find slowed manual reaction time on BEAM. We also know from the literature that post-traumatic stress can negatively affect attention, memory, and executive functioning. And previous eye-tracking studies have found that individuals with PTSD tend to focus or linger on targets longer than those without PTSD. So given that, we hypothesized that we would find increased variability and more errors in their saccadic and manual responses. And so we ran a number of different analyses. The first thing we wanted to look at was just correlations between self-reported depression and post-traumatic stress and beam performance. And no surprise, we found that the greater reported depression was associated with all manual reaction time measures. So we looked at simple reaction time, we looked at reaction time variability, we looked at no-go errors, and then we created a composite measure that baked all of those things into one measure. Correlations for saccadic measures, while still significant, were actually quite a bit lower and the no-go errors were no longer significantly correlated. 
And the overall beam total score, which is a composite measure of all of these, both manual and saccadic measures, was also significantly correlated with a small effect size. The second analyses that we did, we created diagnostic groups, and I'm doing this in air quotes because these are all based off of self-reported symptoms. So they're not actually diagnostic groups, but they're elevated on the measures that we were given. And these groups included what I called a no diagnosis group, a depression only group, a PTS only group, and a combined depression and PTS. We then ran a two by two ANCOVA on the beam total performance, and we found a main effect for PTS, but no main effect for depression and no interaction. Then we ran a series of one-way ANCOVAs, and we ran the covariate analysis because BEAM isn't corrected for age and education, so we corrected for that. And then we compared BEAM performance between the four diagnostic groups. And so for saccadic measures, we found significant differences between groups on all measures, with the exception of saccadic reaction time latency. The no elevation group, no surprise, performed significantly better than the comorbid depression or PTS group on both the saccadic composite and reaction time consistency. And so for no-go errors, the depression and depression PTS groups performed worse. And for manual measures, the no elevation group performed significantly better than the comorbid depression PTS group on the manual composite consistency and impulsivity measures. The depression-only group performed better than the combined depression PTS group on inhibition measures. And just kind of want to pause myself and know that this is a mouthful. I hope people's eyes aren't glazing over as we're talking about this. But really the bottom line with all of this is that those categorized as clinically elevated routinely performed worse than those who were not. This pattern was found more on manual measures than saccadic measures. Interesting. It seemed to me that post-traumatic stress had a much greater impact on beam results than did depression. Do you Yeah, agree? I think you're probably referring to one of the figures, figure 2B in the manuscript. I am, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we were looking at different scores between the four diagnostic groups. And I'm hedging here a bit because there were only nine individuals with PTS only really making it impossible to make any kind of definitive statement. And I would say that PTS certainly looks to be a major contributing factor, as we can see that individuals with the combined PTS and depression look much worse than those with only depression. And in a current normative study that we're conducting at the present time, we're looking at the effects of some of these common comorbidities that, and what they have on beam performance in the absence of TBI. But I think that effort is really critical to better understanding what's driving these degraded performances. Amanda, quick question. I noticed that Dr. Hungerford refers to PTS or post-traumatic stress, and I think many of us are more used to PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Can you tell us what the difference is? This was based on self-report questionnaires, so that's why, right? This wasn't a diagnostic criteria for a disorder. It was post-traumatic stress as it relates to the PCL5 elevation, correct? Perfect. That's exactly right. I would never call anything PTSD based off of a self-report measure. Yeah, absolutely. 
So Amanda, what were the limitations of the study? Well, I mean, we just touched on a limitation there, and I think we've touched on them sort of throughout this discussion. But, you know, all of the psychiatric symptoms that were explored in this study were, again, based off of those self-report questionnaires and not those clinical diagnostic methods. So it, of course, can introduce the possibility of over or underreporting or recall bias, and it's not, again, that clinical diagnosis. The study was also done on predominantly white male active duty service members, so this limits the generalizability of these findings to civilian populations and women. And then as we just discussed, PTS appears to have a greater impact on beam results, but only nine of the 188 subjects had PTS alone. And then lastly, other common TBI comorbidities in service members, such as sleep disturbances, substance use, and chronic pain, were not considered in this study. All right. So what would you say are the key takeaways from this study? So this study really urges providers to consider the impacts of depression, PTS, and mild TBI to include things like oculomotor response times, memory, and processing speed. Depression appears to have the greatest impact on working memory and processing speed, while PTS has more prominent effects on measures of executive function. So I think the BEAM results are really fascinating and a really nice jumping off point for future research on how how oculomotor performance is impacted by mild TBI and other conditions. Dr. Hungerford, a couple of quick questions for you. Is BEAM available to primary care providers in the military right now if they want to order that test? No, it's not. We're still experimental. We are branching out to other clinics, but it's not in clinic yet. We use it primarily at Naval Medical Center San Diego. Uh, We've also partnered up with a couple other research organizations that are using it in a research capacity. Hopefully that will change in the next, I would say, two to three years. I mean, is it FDA clear? Not yet. We're working towards that. That's what this normative study that we've got ongoing right now is geared to address. So we're collecting normative data. And then ultimately, I think we're also putting in for some grant funding to further develop it and refine it and then potentially add some other measures that can tap into uh, different sources of attention and potentially memory as well. So let me give you a chance to provide any additional thoughts. Yeah. So one of the things I, I did want to bring up, I thought that Amanda's responses and critiques are on point as far as these so-called diagnoses being self-report. If you look at the data and you look at the literature critically, you'll find that the vast majority of what's out there in TBI is based off of that. So we do need to look at that critically. And it's a valid criticism and something that we all need to think, especially us researchers, we need to think about, you know, and not get out in front of our skis and call something PTSD when it's, you know, just a self-report measure. But I did want to address the issue with the nine out of 188 individuals having PTS only. And I thought it was certainly a limitation, and it was mentioned in the manuscript. I think it really speaks to the nature and the degree of overlapping comorbidities that we see. You know, concussion patients or mild TBI patients, they don't come to us with well-defined comorbidities. The symptoms they report, they're typically overlapping, they're ill-defined. And usually I have a thing that I go through with my patients, and I basically say, look, A history of TBI is what gets you through the door to see me because I'm in a TBI program. However, I don't sit there with my blinders on and only look at TBI. Take the blinders off and I look at you as a whole person who has lots of different experiences, strengths, weaknesses, stressors, 
all kinds of things going on with you. And most times, no matter how advanced our techniques and tools are, we can't point to a single cause for the way you're feeling or functioning. It's usually a mixture of things. So it's kind of like a, a chili. You know, when you go to a chili cook-off, you can't point to one ingredient that makes it taste the way it does. It's an amalgamation of different ingredients that come together that make something delicious. Same thing with human beings. There's a lot of things that we bring to the table that make us who we are. The purpose of this study is to create better tools to be able to tease out the impact of comorbidities so we can better identify any potential lingering issues that are currently not being identified using traditional measures. And, you know, as I mentioned, we're currently collecting data on several groups. We've got a normative study. So we're getting a bunch of data on healthy controls. So Dr. Ettenhofer has normative data, but it's not in a military sample. So we really wanted to get that in a military sample. So a large number of healthy controls, acute MTBI, we don't have a lot of data on that. What do people look like and how does that change over time? Orthopedic injured controls, PTSD only, depression only, and insomnia only. And those will not be on self-report. Those will actually be diagnosed individuals. That's going to be critical. And the goal of that line of research is to really refine the specificity of BEAM results and use that to inform a future FDA submission for approval in MTBI assessment. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Hungerford. And thank you, Amanda. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. You can stay up to date on future episodes by subscribing to Cubist on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, where you can also find links to the articles we discussed and other relevant resources. Cubist is produced and edited by Vinnie White and was hosted today by me, Don Marion. It is a product of the Traumatic Brain Injury Center of Excellence, a branch of the Research Support Division under the Research and Engineering Directorate of the Defense Health Agency, led by Branch Chief Captain Scott Cota, Medical Corps United States Navy. Thank you for listening to this episode.